the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. No more rainbow tape. That's the policy now in the National Hockey League. No more rainbow tape for Pride Night. That announcement was made a couple of days ago, and of course the people you would expect to be upset are upset. But it's a good move by the NHL, not because it shows that the NHL doesn't like LGBTQ people. It's because the NHL has smartened up, as they say up in Canada, and realized that you can't please everybody, and it's not fair to the players to be forced to take a stand on controversial issues, mainly because most of the North American sports media are ridiculously liberal, and there's only one acceptable position to take on the causes that leagues tend to take up. You, the You Can Play Project, an organization that advocates for LGBTQ participation in sports, released a statement. It says, quote, If hockey is for everyone, this is not the way forward. It is now clear that the NHL is stepping back from its long-standing commitment to inclusion and continuing to unravel all of its one-time industry-leading work on 2SLGBTQ plus belonging. Making decisions to that's uh, eradicate our this is continuing the quote uh, making decisions to eradicate our visibility in hockey by eliminating symbols like jerseys and now pride tape immediately stunts the impact of bringing in more diverse fans and players into the sport. Of course, that's not what it means or does. It only means that the NHL is just going to require the players to, you know, play hockey. And if a team wants to have a pride night, nobody will stop any fan from wearing rainbow colors. It also prevents other groups from pressuring the NHL or the individual teams to give other causes and organizations the visibility that this group is talking about. The NHL is also doing the fans a favor, letting them do what fans are supposed to do, show up and cheer or boo or do whatever else they want to do at a hockey game without anybody getting in their face with anybody's cause. Call the new philosophy, shut up and drop the puck. That'll work for most people. And if you want visibility for your cause or your organization, here's an idea. Buy an ad. When we come back, we'll talk to the communications director of Power of the Future about just how much Joe Biden has helped Iran since he became president. And in our second half hour, we're going to talk to a national spokesperson for the Republican Party about Steve Scalise becoming the Speaker of the House, which he's not yet, by the way, but we'll have that and other stuff. Stick around. Well, the big guy would like you to believe that the $6 billion that he freed up for the Iranians a few weeks ago had nothing to do with Hamas attacking Israel. Apparently they promised, uh, the Iranians did, that, that they would only use it for food and housing and medicine and maybe birthday parties for the kids. Um, Larry Barron's is communications director for Power of the Future, and he keeps his eye on stuff like this, and he joins us now. Larry, thanks for coming on again. 
Hey, thanks so much, John. Great to be here. So um, Iran doesn't have the $6 billion yet. As I said, you keep your eye on what's happening with oil around the world. And uh, you say this is about a lot more than this, just this $6 billion that's sitting there, um, maybe still being waited to be uh, given to the uh, Iranians. Yeah, absolutely. And and I know Iran has promised uh, only to use that money for humanitarian needs, but I also promised my parents at college that credit card was just for emergencies. There are things you just don't believe. And one of the things is Iran has been making money off its oil for well over two years now because Joe Biden has relaxed in enforcing sanctions. And so while the United States has struggled to have domestic energy production, Iran, believe it or not, had a record year of oil exports last year under Joe Biden. So, yes, we absolutely should be talking about that $6 billion he handed over a month ago. But we also need to talk about the billions he's throwing their direction by looking the other way on oil sanctions. So how, how does that happen that um, just the, the, that Iran all of a sudden is breaking records for oil sales just at a time when we want them to do exactly the opposite of that? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and you'd have to ask the Biden administration. Where we, what we look at is Joe Biden is absolutely committed and in love with trying to revamp Barack Obama's nuclear deal with Iran, you know, the one where we already yep. sent them pallets of cash. Yeah. And so it is one of those things where people speculate, you know what, maybe Washington is doing this so that Tehran may come to the table a little more. But, I mean, we all know it is absolute appeasement. And over the last week, we've seen that it is funding just the atrocious things going on in Israel. And so it was something that it, it's just an absolute pipe dream of Joe Biden to be able to continue Barack Obama's legacy with the Iran nuclear deal. But this is what happens when you deal with madmen. They use what you know you give them in terrible, horrible ways. So and, and Iran, from what I understand, is also closer than ever to having uh, the material needed for a nuclear bomb, which is I don't know. This seems like a kind of a bad time for that, too. Yeah, absolutely. And and let's just be clear on that right there. The Ukraine war has, has drawn them closer to Russia, and now Iran has billions to spend. Russia's always looking for more money. But let's just take a look at the, the larger issue with not enforcing these sanctions as well, because not only does Joe Biden get to revive his buddy Barack Obama's nuclear deal, or at least thinks he is, he also gets to bring more oil onto the world market, which he hopes lowers prices, which relieves political pressure for him, right? And he gets to do it while keeping his green friends here in the United States happy because he is, has his thumb against the American energy worker. You know, it, it was shocking to see just moments ago, John Kirby asked, well, does the president have any plans to increase American oil production? And John Kirby just says, I have nothing to say or no specifics about that. Yeah. That's where we are right now. Yeah. So um, he, the, the, the price of gas is ridiculously high here. We're back up to four dollars a gallon here. I don't know what it is around you where you are. It's like three ninety five to four dollars a gallon here, um, and if it's and it's all about so Biden apparently from what you're saying is Biden is okay with empowering Iran uh, as and he's, the trade off is that gas prices will be lower here. And then he'll take credit for the gas prices going down, but nobody will mention that Iran is now making lots more money. 
You're, you're absolutely right. If you're Joe Biden, you're trying to figure out ways to increase oil production anywhere but the United States. That's why he will go to Saudi Arabia and beg for more. That's why he will make deals with Venezuela. And do you know who Iran's two biggest um, customers are when it comes to their oil? It's China and it's Venezuela. And so you have these just regimes that have the United States in the crosshairs, and Joe Biden is more than happy to allow them to produce more oil, but not here in the United States. He has set a record for the fewest acres and for the fewest offshore uh, opportunities to create oil and natural gas to explore for it and, and to extract it here in the United States. And so Americans should be right in asking, why are you undermining the American energy industry while empowering the energy industry of Iran, of Saudi Arabia, of Venezuela? Yeah, I saw um, a clip from Gavin Newsom somewhere a couple of days ago. I, I think he was talking to Sean Hannity, but um, he, he, he said that the oil production, there's never been more oil produced uh, in the United States than has been produced in the last couple of years. He was, he was completely trying to blow the whole we're not producing, producing enough oil argument out of the water. What, what's, what's the, how's, he, how's he trying to get away with that, and how can someone twist it around to make that statement? Yeah, that's a great question, because you're going to hear this a lot from the Biden administration, especially now that they've been caught with their hand in the cookie jar on the Iranian oil sanctions. And so what they are saying is that the United States is projected to increase their production to the most that they've had. Now, let's be clear on what that means. In November of 2019, the United States was uh, producing 13 million barrels of oil a day. And if Joe Biden thinks that, you know, he's going to beat that just on projections, then he's going to brag about it. But let's be clear. If they had not had a president who said, I'm going to end fossil fuels, I'm going to pull back every drilling permit that I can, imagine where we would be right now. The 13 million a day was the high water mark that we achieved before Joe Biden came into office. And he thinks if he gets that, that all will be forgiven. But let's be clear, he could have, we could have had so much more infrastructure and so many more things working in our favor now if he had just gotten out of the way instead of declaring war on America's energy industry. And that doesn't account for the infrastructure, right? He's still canceling pipelines. He is not letting any new refineries be built. And those are the things that would lower gas prices here at home. And oh, by the way, help our allies across the world. Yeah, so what are the chances? I, I, I remember talking, uh, when we were talking about this back in the spring, that uh, early spring anyway, that um, that gas prices were going to go way up after Memorial Day. They didn't seem to do that during the summer, but and actually they seemed to drop a little bit here, uh, which is unusual, I thought. But they look like they're, as I said, they're going back up to $4 a gallon. Should we be expecting them to go above $4 a gallon around here? Yeah, it, it could be tough. Conflict, you know, brings the uncertainty. And that's what, you know, you'll hear from the White House. We want to take out some of the volatility from the market. Well, if you want to take out volatility, volatility, you increase production here at home, right? You have more product on the world market, but they don't have any plans for that. And so to your question of prices, I would expect them to go up more because not only on the terms of just United States production, but Joe Biden has drained the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to where if we only had to rely on 
down that right now, we would only have 17 days of oil to keep the United States going. He has drained it more than any president. And when Gavin Newsom and Joe Biden talk about, you know, we're producing so much, it's because they've drained so much. They actually count that drained, those drained barrels of oil as part of production. That's not new production. That was stored production with no plans to refill it. And so it is, there's not probably a worse time in the history of America to not have the strategic petroleum reserve where we need it. And so it is going to hurt families who are already hurting uh, at the pump and at the grocery store. So we have two and a half weeks. Uh, that seems like a pretty good deal. What, how many? How much time <laughs> are we not. supposed to have? How many days are we you supposed know, to is, have in there? You know, it, it depends how it's used. So strategic petroleum reserve is supposed to be, you know, in, in real emergencies, not just when a president uh, feels his poll numbers are sliding. And so yeah. I would look at it right now. It is probably about 35 percent full if I had to to put a number mm-hmm. on it right now. Now, keep in mind, Joe Biden inherited a strategic petroleum reserve that was 90 percent full. And so that is how much he has drained it just in his short time in office. And so when you look at the number of days and that's just, you know, all of us keep using it. Obviously, if we go to the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, we're going to probably have to cut back a little bit on our use to try to stretch out that time. But there was a whole lot more when Joe Biden got there. He's drained it more than anybody else. And it is something that is supposed to help insulate us against world volatility. And Biden has used it to insulate his poll numbers. We're talking to Larry Barron. He's Communications Director for Power of the Future. So can you explain how how the oil gets from the reserve to my gas tank? And makes it makes my gas cheaper when 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 the uh, the government releases it. Uh, who's where's the oil coming from to refill the tanks, and how does the oil go from? And how and who does yeah. the oil go to from the from these this reserve oil to the gas uh, the gasoline companies that reflect the price at the pump. Yeah, great question. And so the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is literally just tanks of of oil that we hold, as it says, in reserve. Sometimes those tanks are underground, sometimes they're above ground. They are heavily uh, concentrated along the Gulf Coast. And so what Joe Biden did said was, I'm going to drain a million barrels a day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And then that goes out into the market so that those who refine the oil and determine the products we use, whether it's diesel, whether it's unleaded, whether it's jet fuel, whether it's all the products that that oil can, you know, use yeah. to fuel our economy, no pun intended, uh, they they can get it and have access to it, and so that uh, you know they can turn it into those products. Ideally, it is simple uh, supply and demand. They increase the supply, and so that the price will go down. That has been Joe Biden's hope. But what he has really done is he's kind of swiped the credit card to pay for the bills. And yes, that keeps your lights on for another month. But then the next month, you have the credit card bill and the electric bill do because he has stopped the domestic production in other words like quitting your job Mm -hmm. he has not had any oil coming in that would then refill it the few times he's tried to refill it by the time the orders came through and all the papers got signed the price of oil was too high Uh, and we have to remember that when donald trump was trying to refill the strategic petroleum reserve during when the pandemic first hit and the price of oil went negative the Democrats stopped him from doing it because they said, you're just trying to have a payout for your oil buddies. He was going to buy oil at $20 a barrel. Today we sit here and it's at $85 a barrel. So if we are to refill it, the government's going to have to pay that price to refill it. And when the government paying that price, you know what that means. It means you and I are paying that price. So, and so Joe Biden has tried to drain it and then waited for the price to come down to refill it, but it's never dipped. So the government, buy, the, the government can't produce oil. 
The government has to buy the oil from the same people that we buy it from when we buy gasoline, Correct. right? So they buy At the, the market oil. price. Yeah, so they buy the oil in gigantic quantities, I'm guessing, from various mm-hmm. oil companies, and they, they throw it in a bunch of barrels, and then they're supposed to wait until we really need it and then put it back on the market. But if they, if they pay, say, $25 a barrel for it, and then five years later they decide it has to be back out on the market, what are they selling? Who and what are they selling it for, and who are they selling it to? So they release it. They don't just sell it because it was it was purchased by tax dollars. So it gets back into the market so that it can be part of the the larger supply. But yeah, but when you say, I guess what was, I'm I'm having sorry, Larry, but what I'm having trouble understanding sure. is you say it release it back into the market. There are a bunch of these barrels full of oil. Um, are they just are they handed over to the oil companies? Do the oil companies have to pay a price for it? How does it work? They would probably have they would have to pay the the price that is there. To, to get a use of it as well, but the hope would be right with an influx of you know however many a day that it would then be a lower price. That but that hasn't borne out yet because it's bad economic policy. Because the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was never designed to be used as a market manipulator. When President Carter started it, it was used. It was you know the idea for it was incentivized when Americans were being held hostage by OPEC, and so this was supposed to be used in times of national emergency, which it had been until Joe Biden came into office, or to help our military in times of conflict. And so when you look at it, it's never supposed to be used to end up in your gas tank or my gas tank. Joe Biden has used it that way. And so the the processes of how to get the oil out, to get the oil back in, has all changed up because Joe Biden has used it not in an emergency situation, but in a political situation. And so your question is a good one. It's just that Joe Biden is using it in such a way where we haven't had to account those questions before. Uh, he and John Kirby, his uh, national security advisor, um, just in the last couple of days, have doubled down on Joe's belief that our biggest threat is climate change. And we have to, I forget what the number is, the degrees to, uh, that we have to either prevent the earth from uh, warming to uh, by 2030. How do you turn this around with idiots like that in office? And is it, is it going to be possible to do that uh, if they're around for four more years after this, five, really, from now. Yeah, you know, John, that's a, a great question. And, and I, I got to be honest, uh, my job is to have those answers and have that understanding. But I'm just going to be upfront with you. I don't know. With this group in Washington, I don't know. I, I'm looking at the, that exact same thing. And, you know, a, a, what was it, a day before Joe Biden released the $6 billion to Iran, he said that climate change was a bigger threat than nuclear war. The mm-hmm. next day he gave $6 billion to Iran. A month later, here we are. And so when you look at people who just have failed priorities, that equals failed leaders. I would argue that Joe Biden is up there now with Nero, with Neville Chamberlain, and just not seeing the world for the, what it really is. And we are all having to pay, sadly, a terrible price for that. You would hope that people would wake up and understand where the blame should lie, but I, I, I don't know if the media will portray this to the point that voters will get it, but I guess we'll see, huh? Yeah, I, I guess so. I, I mean, if and, and you're right, because I, I've seen the, the news reports, too, both from Israel and, and from the media. You know, if you have someone at the White House or some talking head on the media telling you the economy is great and you go into the grocery store and you look at, you know, I looked at those little uh, four pack of pizzas that I used to cook because that's the only thing I can cook for my kids. And that <laughs> doubled in price in just the last year. 
And it is, and that is seen all throughout the grocery store. So if you see that while some talking head is telling you that everything is great, you know you're being lied to, and you have to ask yourself, what is this person's motivation for lying to me? It is because they are invested in a status quo agenda that pays off, you know, Joe Biden's green friends, so that he can continue to get those campaign contributions. It's an absolute green grift. Well, it's scary to think that there are millions of people out there who vote for these people. It's just, it's scary to me. We'll see what happens. I'm sure we'll have you on again, and let's hope things are better the next time we have you on. But, of course, usually when I have you on, things are not good. So I don't know. <laughs> I, maybe... <laughs> I, I, I hope things get better, too, John. I really do. All Thanks right. so much for having me. All right. Thank you. That's Larry Barron's Communications Director for Power of the Future. We'll be right back. Well, the final score was 113 to 99, and Steve Scalise won. He's the Republican nominee uh, for Speaker of the House. At least he's leading in the process right now. Jim Jordan got the 99. So now what? Madison Jessiotto Gilbert is a national spokesperson for the Republican Party. She joins us now. Madison, thanks for coming on. Good to be with you. So the House still has to vote on this uh, on the floor of the House. When is that likely to happen? They're saying it's not looking like it will be today, so we'll see. But the sooner the better, that's for sure. We want to see this speakership race finished so that we can continue to move forward and focus on what our voters and investors are most interested in, which is reeling in spending, passing common sense legislation, focusing on that goal of beating Biden next November. And, of course, obviously what's going on in the Middle East right now, a huge focus for people all across this country. Well, Scalise needs uh, this is I guess we're all kind of new to this because, you know, to have one to have a speaker be removed in the middle of the of a term um scalise needs 217 votes and that means the 99 people who voted for jordan have to cross over some members have already said they'll vote for jordan on the floor so it sounds like this might be a long way from being over and it could be uh we hope it's not though because the longer we wait the worse it is i think for the country And we hear time and time again, as we continue to talk to people all over, people do not want to see this infighting, especially publicly, that we're seeing in the House. The more divided the House is, the less likely we are to not only win next November, but the less likely we are to expand our majority. And it's very hard with a small majority to get things done. So the larger majority, the better. And our voters are not happy with the fact that we don't have any leadership right now and the fact that we aren't getting all the things done that they want to see done. And so in order to do that, we have to move forward. We have to have more unity as a party. It's something that as a national party we're talking about. It's why we put the pledge in place for our presidential candidates saying, hey, listen, uh, you know, we're focused on having a fair and transparent primary process. But once this is over, we want everybody behind whoever our Republican nominee is. We want to make sure they're the most equipped possible to win next November so that going into 2025, we can have a Republican back in the White House, because that's the only thing that matters at the end of the day. None of these other small arguments are going to matter if we don't have the opportunity to do anything about it. So we have to be winning these races. And I think in order to do so, we have to have more unity because people across the country are getting a bad taste in their mouth with the less unity that we continue to see. And of course, we see the Democrats on the other side. They fight, too. They fight behind closed doors. But at the end of the day, when it comes to the finish line, it comes to getting it done. They come together, they win elections, they get it done. And so we need to do a better job as a Republican Party of doing that if we want to see more success next year. Um, as you said, speaking of behind closed doors, that that's where this vote was taken. Um, and, and so, we again, we don't see the process and we don't 
I don't know. I, I guess there's there are arguments back and forth, debates going on back and forth in, in, in behind those closed doors. Um, but what what would what is the difference between the House speakership being held by Scalise and the, and Jordan? Who how is that? How, what what are they? What's the difference between the two? I guess is what I'm trying to say. Listen, I know both of them. I think they would both do a great job as speaker. I'd be happy to see either one of them come out of this successful as soon as possible. I know the chairwoman knows them both and feels the same. Uh, So there may be minor differences, but at the end of the day, the American people, I think, will be happy with a strong leader, regardless of who that is, that continues to push forward on getting legislation passed, getting things done, and again, focusing on those main goals of why they were all put in office to begin with in the Mm -hmm. House. You know, people want less spending. We don't want to see over $30 trillion of national debt. You know, it was almost 10 years ago now that I was writing uh, for the Washington Times at the time, and I was talking about the fact that we were going to surpass $13 trillion of national debt at the time. It was 2015, how this was a number we simply couldn't come back from. Fast forward, it's not even 2024, and now we're past $32 trillion. I mean, this is unsustainable spending. People recognize that. So it's the focus of many people, and without getting these type of things settled, we won't be able to focus on that. Scalise. So I think that and among you know, the other things as well you're seeing across the country with the border, crime. I mean, mm-hmm. you can name one thing after another. There's no shortage of work for Congress. Well, Scalise has cancer. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene says that's why she voted for Jordan. Uh, and she says she's going to vote for Jordan on the floor. So uh, when the when they take the vote, she's voting. One, she's not crossing over. Uh, she says she likes Scalise and wants to see him beat cancer, and doesn't want to see him distracted from doing that by being Speaker of the House. Do you think Scalise would have won by a bigger margin if not for the health issues? You know, who who really knows? Yeah. And every single congressperson is going to have their own reason as to why they'll vote one way or another. But again, at the end of the day, we're going to have to get a speaker and people are going to have to potentially change some votes. And I think we'll see that happen. We'll see, you know, who changes quicker than others. But I, th- I think it will happen and, and we'll get to the end of this. Well, let's say that Scalise has voted in just for the sake of argument. He's he's the he's got the upper hand right now. Will we notice? And I, when I say we, I mean, I don't mean people within the Republican Party or or even people in the media, just uh, the people out here on the street, are they going to notice any big difference in what happens in the House uh, compared to when Kevin McCarthy was in charge? Whether it would be, no matter which one of these two guys had won, is there going to be any big difference in what happens starting whenever they take over, whenever that person takes over? Well, you know, that's something we'll all have to wait and see. You know, you don't really know what's going to happen until it happens. Uh, But at the same time, I think having a Republican speaker is a great thing. And there's only so much at the end of the day that a Republican speaker, though, no matter who it is, can get accomplished because of the fact that they had that slim majority and we don't hold the Senate. Um, If we would have been more successful in the Senate races last year and we had control of the House and the Senate, I think we'd have a little more leverage on legislation and what we can get done. But uh, we don't hold the Senate. And so we obviously count on those Republican House majority to be that first line of defense against the Biden administration and a lot of their failed policies. But they can't do everything without a Senate. And so hopefully next year, not only will we win the White House, but we can win that Senate back and have control of all three again, like we did in 2017. And I think we could really push through some great legislation and turn things around because it's really getting to a point where uh, we don't have much more road to go on a lot of these issues. We have to turn things around. We have to change the path of the direction our country is going. And the large, large majority of Americans feel that way. And I think it's now 73 percent of Americans who believe our country's on the wrong track. Uh, and that number just continues to rise. Before that, it was in the early, uh, low 60s. So you continue to see more and more people that just are frustrated with what's going on. 
and many Biden voters from 2020 that say, hey, listen, I really believed that he was going to do these things. Time and time again, voters, what they thought politicians, I believed them. I really counted on this and it didn't happen. And when you look at how disastrous a lot of the economic policies of the Biden administration have been, you look at how people are suffering, you look at how small businesses have suffered, uh, people aren't happy. And so a lot of people who maybe haven't committed to voting for a Republican right now, but they're at least now listening and opening their eyes to the fact that there is a party that stands in stark contrast. There is a vision that's different than what they've been living with for two and a half years. And so I think we will see some independents that didn't swing our way in 2022 that ultimately may swing Republican in 2024. Well, I want to talk about Robert F. Kennedy, speaking of independents, in just a second. But before we get to that, um, I, I did spend most of my last segment with a guest talking about how Joe Biden has helped Iran with his uh, policies on energy and his, just his um, the way he's been dealing with Iran, uh, who has been funding Hamas. What can Republicans in the House do to put a stop to that? And I'm talking about now rather than after the election, which is a long way off, uh, you know, in, yeah. in, in respect with respect to this. Yeah, I mean, and Republicans can stand up against what he's doing, but there's only so much, again, that they can do. Uh, and when you see some of the stuff the Biden administration is doing and failing to do, I mean, you even look at Biden's speech yesterday. He didn't even mention Iran once in his speech. Uh, Hamas, let's, let's be real here, Hamas could not have attacked Israel on that scale that we've seen, you know, over the past less than a week now without Iran. Uh, so a disastrous decision unilaterally by the administration to unfreeze that $6 billion. Uh, and I think we need to continue to put that pressure on for them to refreeze the $6 billion because money is fungible, as we all know, and there should be no reason that they have access to that money right now after we've seen what's happened, which a lot of people predicted may happen. Some didn't even predict it would happen this fast, but they predicted that, hey, this could encourage more hostage taking. This could allow them to free up money elsewhere that they could use to help fund terrorist attacks. I mean, Iran's been the largest state sponsor of terror for years. And this is just another example of that. And so we need to make sure we continue to put the heat on the administration, uh, not only just, you know, our congressmen, but as American citizens, put the heat on the administration and make our voices be heard that we do not support this horrible foreign policy that's simply making all of us less safe, not just in the United States, but across the entire world. We're talking to Madison Gessiotto Gilbert. She's a national spokesperson for the Republican Party. Um, So as I mentioned, uh, Robert F. Kennedy just announced, I think it was yesterday, that he's running for president as an independent because the Democrats won't give him the time of day, of course. Um, Who does he hurt or help the most in 2024 running as an independent? Well, he's even acknowledged himself that he hurts Republicans more. And I think it's very, very interesting to see how people are being fooled. And it's important that people are not fooled uh, with this guise of RFK Jr. being an independent. He's not close to an independent. There's very little daylight between him and a typical Democrat politician. Uh, And I could go down the list with you all day long about everybody he's supported and the things that he's done and where he stands on a lot of these issues. You know, this is someone who was an extensive supporter of Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, who voted for, obviously, Joe Biden in 2020. Uh, He's a self-described Kennedy Democrat. He's, again, admitted his candidacy will take from Republicans more than it will take from Biden. Uh, And so that's something I keep reminding people of. Uh, A third-party bid by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is not helpful to us. Um, people, I think some people are like, oh, well, maybe he'll take 
more votes from Biden. That's simply not true. Um, but in the past, it's just one thing after another, whether it's calling the NRA a terror group. He praised rabid anti-Semite Louis Farrakhan as a truly great partner. Uh, and then when you talk about the focus right now that many people have on China and what's going on uh, in regards to the international community, RFK Jr. is someone who lauded China's 2015 cap and trade commitment as revolutionary, uh, which is simply wrong. And he's a huge supporter of the failed Paris Climate Accords and you know just so, or Paris Climate Agreement. There's just you know so much more. Uh, he's not someone that is should be our president. And I, I believe that we need to keep people informed on who he really is and where he really stands on these issues. Well, how well are you doing that? Because he, I see. Uh, whether it's on social media or every once in a while on the actual regular media, um, I see Republicans and so-called conservatives talking about how much they like Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, is he getting away with this because of personality, uh, you know, being the underdog and, and, the, and the last name? Because he sure, seems to be fooling a lot of Republicans. Yeah, to a certain extent, absolutely. I mean, he's definitely charismatic, and a lot of people do not really do their research, don't know all of these things. But obviously, as a party, we continue to stand up, share this information. I've been talking about this a lot, uh, and we're making sure as many people know about this as possible. As you said, he just announced that independent bid yesterday, and uh, we'll continue to keep him on our radar and be focused on informing people about him. And again, though, the main goal being focused on beating Biden next November. And so... On top of what we're doing with informing people, we're really focused on our bank your vote and protect your vote initiatives, which are going to play a huge role in our win. Uh, Donald Trump's poll numbers keep going up and the gap between him and the rest of the field seems to keep growing. At this point, what could prevent him from getting the nomination? You know, we'll see what happens in the primary process. I've known the president for a long time. Uh, he's been a great friend, and I'm you know, looking forward to whether it's him or another one of our Republican candidates uh, doing everything we can from a party perspective to back them, doing everything we can to help them get across the finish line, equip them with the tools of success that we have that can help them win. Uh, we have one of the best data operations uh, in the world. Democrats have modeled a lot of our data to a certain extent in, in trying to grow their program. So we'll be working closely, whether that be with President Trump or you know, anybody that becomes our nominee to make sure that they beat Biden. Yeah, um, and he um, is, as I said, he's, the gap between him and the rest of the field is so gigantic. At what point does it just does it just make more sense for the party to say, OK, let's cut this stuff out. He's the guy that everybody wants. And let's just focus on. Well, first of all, you got to focus on the the PR aspect of it with all the indictments and all the stupidity. But let's just focus on the one guy. And, and get this thing done. It's because they, 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 nobody's ever come back from a deficit like that, I don't think, at this point. Once we get through the primary process, we'll be able to do that. But the reality is, as a party, we have to put on a fair and transparent primary process for all candidates. Obviously, it's an unprecedented situation with there being uh, the four years of gap between his first administration and a potential second. Yeah. Um, so it is a very unique position for both the party and for you know President Trump to be in. But again, at the end of the day, we have to put forward a fair and transparent process, which is what we've been doing um, with all of our candidates that have you know put their name on the ballot. Um, we applaud people for doing that. And we look forward again to supporting whoever comes out victorious. And uh, we're you know in the background preparing everything we can to day one, as soon as those primaries and caucuses are over, to be prepared to do that. Well, it's hard to believe that in a couple of weeks it's going to be one year till Election Day. I guess 
Uh, time flies when you're having fun. It's been uh, it's hard to believe it's been three years of this insanity, but uh, we're almost there. So I appreciate you coming on, Madison. You got a lot of work to do, and uh, and I'm wishing you good luck because this we got to get rid of this guy. He's got to go. That's that's for sure, 100. percent There's certainly a lot of work to do. We're ready to do it, and I appreciate you having me on. Looking forward to joining again soon. Uh, okay, thank you. That's Madison uh, Jesse Otto Gilbert. We'll be right back. I remember Black Lives Matter. We don't hear too much about them uh, these days. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that the, one of their organizers spent about $10 million buying houses uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and they're, I don't know, they suffered a little uh, in the PR department there because of that. But this won't help them. Uh, the BLM Chicago put out a social media post on uh, the Israel attacks and it says, I stand with Palestine. And it has a little drawing of a paraglider along with a Palestinian flag. That's, um, that's, this is what, a couple of days after uh, all these, well, everybody has seen the other videos of all the atrocities over there in Israel. And this, just the stupidity, even if, even if forget the stupidity of having that attitude in the first place, but of coming out a couple of days after that with everything that's going on and all the videos that are out there and all this talk about uh, how barbaric and how it was the, you know, the worst thing since the Holocaust and all that stuff, all of which is true, to not only come out and, and say, I stand with Palestine, but to have a picture of a paraglider on there. Now, these guys came in on paragliders and attacked a... F- music festival of unarmed, young, college-aged people dancing, drinking, partying, having a good time, and just started shooting them. So Black Lives Matter comes out and publishes a, uh, a, a, a statement and puts it up on um, social media with a picture of one of those paragliders and saying, hey, way to go, guys, we're with you. We stand with you in uh, just massacring people. It's it's unbelievable. And since they had put that post up, it's been seen by 26 point, well, put it this way, it has 26.9 million views. And um, the, the, just imagine a, a few years ago, if someone would have tried to put something like that up on Twitter or YouTube or anywhere, you'd think it would be canceled. But Elon Musk is in charge now, and his response to it was really simple. Your position is clear. That's brilliant. That's all he said. Thanks. Now we know where you stand. You're, uh, you're good with the Palestinian or with, the, with Hamas massacring people, innocent people, babies, grandmothers, and you're really impressed by the paraglider, the use of the paraglider. Maybe you'd like to see more of that. This is Black Lives Matter doing this. And uh, so that's where we are, and it can only get worse. And this is, again, an organization that has been basically stealing money from people. And the media still love them. We'll see where that goes after after this uh, thing has been viewed at least 26.9 million times. I stand with Palestine. Nice going, Black Lives Matter. I'll talk to you tomorrow. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.